Hi, and welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski. Stay tuned for a quick message from our sponsor. Do all your notes look the same? We all know that the most common solution for medical notes is typing with cut and paste templates, but we also know this doesn't lead to a good quality note. Meet the AI-powered, voice-enabled digital assistant for doctors. Meet Suki. Get your notes done in 76% less time, but also create a better note. By losing the keyboard in your voice, you get high-quality notes into the system faster, resulting in reduced billing errors and better communication with the rest of the healthcare team. Go to get.suki.ai to learn more. That's get.suki.ai. Hi, and welcome to the Voice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sobolski, the founder of a company called Ionia Healthcare Consulting. We focus on conversational AI, AI, and digital health. I am joined today by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Reed McClellan. Reed, say hello. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here with you today. I'm the CEO and founder of Cortina Health, a healthcare technology company with a focus on restoring the care in medicine and improving quality of life for both patients and physicians. We have, as always, special guests on board. Today's topic will be family practice, the AFP, and we have two experts from the family practice world who are here to share their ideas on the family practitioner, digital health. So I'm joined today by two gentlemen who I'll allow to introduce themselves, and we'll start with Dr. Waldron. Hello, I'm Steve Waldron. I'm a family physician informaticist. I'm on staff at the American Academy of Family Physicians. I'm their vice president, chief medical informatics officer. I'm responsible for our health information technology, advocacy, physician adoption, and the driving of innovation into family medicine using technology. Great. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Jacob Pronuski. I'm an academic family physician in Wisconsin. I am a member of a steering committee called America Needs More Family Doctors 25 by 2030. This is a national initiative that's interested in improving health and healthcare through increasing the number of U.S. medical school graduates choosing family medicine as a career. So I'm going to start with Dr. Pronunsky, and I want you to say, Jake, do you mind if I call you Jake or Jacob? Jake is just fine. Thank you. Okay, sure. So Jake, I'm going to really a big open-ended question, and then Steve, you'll get the same one. Why the focus on digital health when it comes to family practice and growing um, you know, sort of the congregants of that uh, faculty? Yeah, this is a great question. So when I started practice about 20 years ago, the electronic health records were just emerging. Over the past 20 years, they become widely adopted. And for all the advantages that the electronic health record has, it's not really met our potential. And large surveys of physicians show that the existing EMRs, the existing technology is contributing to physician burnout. Nationally, we have a workforce shortage. We have a US population that by and large is getting older and sicker. We have a large number of boomer physicians who are gonna be retiring. And for many years, we've not been producing enough family physicians and general practitioners to meet this growing need. So. The reason I'm interested in AI and technology is one, to address the concern that existing technologies are contributing to physicians leaving the workforce and burnout. And two, 
we need to figure out ways to practice differently in order to meet our health uh, and healthcare needs in the country. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with with Jake. Uh, you know, as I think about uh, digital health and family medicine, um, you know, we know from family medicine's uh, evidence that it's called the the five C's that really drive high quality, low cost care, and that's you know being comprehensive, having good continuity of care, making sure that care is coordinated, making sure they have good first contact in in primary care. And we know that if we can do those things well, that we can achieve the the triple aim. And I think with the use of technology, we can actually have two more C's. We can improve the capacity of primary care and family medicine to achieve those ends. And then I think we can also improve the capabilities. So I think there's some great opportunities with artificial intelligence and machine learning to expand the capability of primary care to do more things for patients than we currently have. And as it relates to kind of that first contact piece too, I think there's a real opportunity for digital health to move family medicine out of the four walls of the office and into the homes of our patients and really help them deliver on the, their promise of improved health across their entire life. This is so, Jake. Steve, I want to follow up on that. I think the pandemic has really highlighted the need for these changes as we look at different ways of care. Um, you know, we have an increase in ability to provide video conferencing and video health as well as telehealth. I think one of the challenges we'll face forward is will our policies uh, mirror our capabilities? Yeah, I, I think it's really great example of the, the interplay between policy and, and adoption, I think, of, of the pandemic. So in the early days of the pandemic back in, in March, uh, we saw with the lockdowns, people moving to more, you know, virtual virtual care, even though the payment really wasn't there. And in family medicine, we had about 13% or so of our membership leveraging telehealth prior to the, the pandemic. Uh, but by the time May came around, when the policies changed to actually make sure that, that we had flexibility to adopt these technologies, 94% uh, according to our survey, said they were using and leveraging telehealth in their in their environment. So I think there's a real opportunity if we can change some of the policies around. Uh, family medicine is definitely ready to adopt these types of technologies and transform healthcare. Good insights from both of you, and I'm glad you brought up the pandemic. Um, let me sort of follow up with where we were, which is, you know, getting people. I was speaking to one of my. Um, Good friends, Bruce Corus, who's a longtime executive in healthcare and has some great ideas on healthcare technology. And Bruce and I were talking about family practice and sort of came to this conclusion that uh, it might be sort of the it future residency based on the technologies it's going to start to adopt to leverage, uh, you know, its objectives in the med medical field. Uh, maybe both of you could sort of talk about that sort of vision and how you might be using that in the narrative of recruitment? I think there's a lot of potential. One of the challenges we have is getting the right care to the right people in the right place at the right time. Technology clearly can help with that. I think um, a good AI system can help with triage, helping a patient decide whether they should make a phone call whether they should go to their primary care doctor's office or go to the urgent care or ER. I think that the technology enables me to reach patients where they're at. 
I have patients with mobility concerns, for example, and being able to connect with them by video at their home is so much easier, more convenient, and in many cases, just as effective as an office visit. So I think figuring out that is going to be critical. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think it's really a great opportunity for family medicine to be in primary care to be seen as kind of the central part of, of care delivery. If we look at other countries, a lot of them have a really robust um, primary care uh, infrastructure. Um, and we know the outcomes uh, in the of, of health and wellness in those organizations, excuse me, those countries um, are surpassing what we currently have here in the United States. Um, but I think the innovation around the technology though, makes it so that we can actually do that in a way that's enjoyable, fun, engaging for the physicians and the patients and be able to kind of get out of the norms of where medicine has been for the last, you know, many decades of, you know, you need to go in and see your doctor, you go into the office, you have an office visit, um, they tell you what to do, they send the orders, um, and then you leave, and then you come back at your regular scheduled appointment in, in many months, or the next time you have an issue, to one that's more of a longitudinal relationship where you have a care team that you're interacting with on a more regular basis and really helping you manage your health and wellness, uh, in addition to you know manage any chronic diseases you have, so I think there's some real opportunities there um, to make primary care look really digital forward. Uh, and then you think about the the revolution that we're having in AI and ML, and increasing that capacity that I mentioned, um, but also increasing that capability. Um, there's a new product on the marketplace. It's an AI-based tool that actually allows the computer to look into the back of someone's eye if they have diabetes. And with good certainty, it can determine are there changes relative to diabetes? Is there diabetic retinopathy or not? And kind of what severity is that? Um, So all diabetics need to have an annual eye exam to check to see if there's any progress of that uh, retinopathy. Typically today, we write a script to have them get referred out to ophthalmology to go and have that visit done. And, and then we have to make sure they followed up and did that. Um, with, with AI, we can bring that into primary care, be right there when I'm seeing the patient talk with them saying, you know, we need an eye exam. So I'm going to send you right down the hall here um, and we're going to take a picture of your eye and the AI and I are going to look at it and make sure that you don't have any changes because of your diabetes. And if so, then we'll refer you out to, for ophthalmology to take a, a, a definitive exam and, and follow up anything that's needed for your diabetic retinopathy. So I think we'll see more of those type of solutions moving forward and expanding the the capabilities of primary care moving forward. I have two really big hopes for AI. So physicians train long and hard to become doctors and then spend much of their time doing skills and and tasks that other people can do just as well and maybe better. And my hope is that technology and AI is going to free doctors up to do the things that they're uniquely trained to do that no one can do as well or better than they can. So the technology isn't likely to replace physicians, but it can replace some of the tasks that physicians are currently doing to allow physicians to do the things that only they can do well. So if I spend less time, for example, um, doing that referral for the eye clinic or you know, less time doing tasks that can be handled by the AI or other members of the team, maybe I can spend that time directly with my patient talking to them about the vexing issues they're struggling with, 
about challenging things like you know, end of life care or complex management decisions that require long conversations, addressing people's mental health or emotional state or health within the community, things that often get second uh, priority in the office because we're busy doing other tasks. So my first big hope for AI and for technology is that that's gonna free up the physician to do those things that we know add value to patient's health. My second hope is that there will be an appeal for a rising generation of medical students and doctors, and that if family physicians and family medicine practices adopt AI, it'll improve the work environment, and improve the lifestyle and the quality of care that family physicians feel they can provide, and, and then draw more people into primary care practice. You know, Jake, we're starting to see that already. Uh, at the AAFP, we have a new innovation lab where we're um, trying out new technologies that are emerging. And, you know, voices uh, and uh, NLP is a really big uh, capability that uh, these solutions are Im implementing. Um, and we have a particular product that we're working with right now that does documentation. So you can tell this clinical digital assistant what you want to document. And it's not, you know, doing the dictation, but it's saying, you know, change this, do that. Um, and it can do those simple kind of uh, changes. And we saw in our pilots about a 60% reduction in the amount of time to, to document um, while the patient's kind of in the exam room. And then after hours, so for all physicians, there's this epidemic of, you know, having to do a lot of documentation in the office and after hours. And in our tool that we uh, studied in our pilot, it saw a 70% reduction in the amount of time to, to do that documentation after, um, after the after hours. Um, so I think you're right. There's a really good uh, promise there. And, and I, that word promise too, I think you'll hear Jake and I both talk a lot about hope and promise um, because this is not a, a done deal. Um, there's still a lot of evidence that we have to get gather for these type of tools and make sure that can actually be implemented in ways that really work and get the outcomes that we want. But there's just tremendous promise. And unfortunately, we didn't get that promise yet out of the EMRs, but uh, we are hopeful that we'll get that out of this new uh, set of technologies. And the EMRs clearly have provided value. I don't lose labs. You know, you can find the last thyroid study. It does allow some communication. But they also have serious challenges. Notes are unnecessarily complex. Sometimes it's difficult to find things within a note. And physicians who used to talk to each other face-to-face -face in a doctor's lounge or make a phone call are now leaving messages that I think don't garner the same level of attention that live communication brings. And, and so I think it's critical that physicians especially family physicians and primary care physicians be at the table as these decisions are being made, help design systems that effectively meet patients' healthcare needs and really work with governments and health systems and policymakers to ensure that the processes line up and the policies line up to support effective use of technology and AI to improve you know, health of people within the community. Well, you guys brought up uh, one of my favorite topics in uh, the world of healthcare, and that's leveraging technology, uh, in particular, artificial intelligence. So, Jake, you mentioned that, and you're absolutely right, uh, the 
advent of the EMR system has been one of the primary uh, factors that is being shown to have a massive issue for physician burnout. Part of that is that doctors don't want to have to learn new technologies. Part of that is that they're being inundated with a tremendous amount of additional information that they don't necessarily have the time to sort through. You guys have both discussed how we hopefully like to move more to having a whole wellness team to be watching patients, not just once a year for your physical, but throughout the entire year. Uh, and the best way to do that probably is to implement certain types of AI algorithms and different types of wearable uh, uh, technologies and this and that. But the question is, for AI to work, it has to have data to learn upon first. Before any product can even be created, it has to have data. Who owns that data though? Does the doctor own the data? Does the patient own the data? Can the data just be acquired by anyone? You know, Steve, and I, and I think um, that's one important fundamental question that's gonna need to be you know, properly addressed. Um, I would just pivot it slightly in regards to kind of, I think, where the focus is. I, I don't think it's as much ownership as it is access, because with digital, you can, unlike other types of property, you can have, you know, multiple copies of it, and they're the same, and you don't degrade the value by creating two or three copies. Um, but really, the question is, is who can access it and for what? Um and you know, before the pandemic, there started to be a conversation happening in healthcare um, about uh, patients' rights to health data. Um, you know, the current infrastructure regarding to the regulatory environment is focused around uh, HIPAA, uh, and HIPAA is only about covered entities. So, as big tech got into this space and trying to either create AI solutions or create digital health solutions. They are outside the scope of the protections of HIPAA. Now you still have some FTC stuff, and you also have brands. So you know the big names are not going to go out and purposely do something to to you know tarnish their brand. So they're not out there. You know I think trying to do stuff nefariously or unsecurely, but um, there's no regulatory framework that's overseeing that. And we saw states like uh, California start to put some of those in. So there's been a a national discussion in the pre-pandemic era about a relook at the national kind of health privacy laws as it relates to non-covered entities and covered entities. And unfortunately, with the pandemic, that's one of the things that got derailed was that conversation. But we're starting to see that conversation start to happen. The eHealth initiative is starting to have some of that conversation and putting out some, some thoughts around that. So I would suspect in 2021, we'll start to see some conversations about that in, in more depth. Um, and it's about who can provide access, who can have access to that information for the common good. Because a lot of these times, you know, you want that data to be available because you need that large volume of data to get the innovations and the insights to deliver improvements in healthcare. But at the same token, you need to protect individuals' privacy rights? And then what's the monetary value of that data as well? If you're a private company and you create that in, in new innovation and insight, now are you the only one that can take access to that? Um, so there's a lot of nuance in there and a lot of thorny issues that are going to have to be discussed, I think. Uh, and I think that conversation will likely start in 2021 sometime. 
And this conversation is going to follow on existing conversations with big tech about privacy around the globe. You see very different approaches to data and who controls and manages data. I think one of the important distinctions in healthcare is it feels intensely personal in a way that you know your grocery store card where someone's tracking the groceries you buy or you know a company keeping track of your services doesn't. And I think when we're talking with patients as physicians and when we're talking with you know communities making a distinction between big data you know aggregate data that's not tied to any particular individual but may still help drive health and healthcare innovation and drive improvements in quality of care delivery is a little bit different than individual data that can be personally identified sort of the stuff covered by HIPAA and i think ultimately most of us as human beings say look if this is going to improve my life personally, I'm all for it. I think, you know, there'll be lots of back and forth and lots of conversations about uh, safety of uh, information and privacy of data. But we as society give up lots of data already because it makes our life easier, more convenient or better in some way. Um, I think, as Steve said, those conversations are going to play out more visibly in healthcare in coming years. That's so true. We all, we all sign the terms of service always. Um, whenever and whenever a new one comes out, we we sign that as well for non healthcare related uh, data. Stephen, you you mentioned an interesting uh, way AI is already helping the family medicine uh, world, and that's taking care of uh, screenings for diabetic retinopathy. Um, Prior to the, uh, having this AI, you said that you normally had to send most uh, individuals to uh, to an ophthalmologist or an, an optometrist to have their eye exam. But now we have AI and machines to do that for us. I guess the question here is, what happens if the AI is wrong, though, and we miss a certain amount of patients and they go forward with, you know, getting blind? Who's Who's to blame for that? Yeah, you bring up one of the key issues on the, li the liability front relative to the technology. So, of course, today the, the, the physician is liable, that the technologies are not liable. But I think as we move to more AI-based solutions where the, the technology is making a decision, even though it's being you know, overseen and supervised by the, uh, the physician, um, the physician may not have the capability to evaluate the decision made by the AI. Um, so I think the future is some type of shared liability. Um, I think the other things too that are important is to make sure that we understand what goes into designing these tools and kind of what's the oversight. Um, you know, and that particular tool I talked with is, you know, FDA approved, um, and it's, you know, gone through that, that rigor. There's others that do not go through that. Um, so there's an interesting um, conversation out there of a what's called a risk-based framework for kind of oversight. Um, so you think about um, an AI solution and is it a black box or not? So as a clinician, can I see how it came to the decision that it made? Um, is the decision and action urgent? So is this in the in the ICU where I need to make a snap decision on what I'm going to do for this patient? Or is this in a follow-up where I have you know, a couple of weeks to make my determination of what I should do? So 
if you think about these different risks, if it's something that's black box, that it's urgent, um, that I can't get access to the underlying data, um, that is a higher risk. And in that sense, uh, there should be more oversight and potentially more liability that's being held by the the producer of the algorithm. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting conversation moving forward. And I think that dovetails in too with the other key issue that we have to think about with AI models is fairness. So what is the bias? Um, so we know our data is going to be biased because we're humans and we're, we're fundamentally um, set up as bias. Um, so how do we make sure that we mitigate that in, in the AI models and making sure that we understand how that works um, and works well. And then also, just like any of our clinical trial trials, how do we make sure that we get the right data and right individuals that are represented in that data into these training models so that we can have generalizability or at least know that this model will work for this particular type of population? So I think that's another issue with AI that's gonna be important to think through. There's a, there's a human piece beyond that. So in addition to the diversity and equity and inclusion issues, I think there's a physician identity issue, right? So what happens when the AI clearly becomes better than the physician? Does that mean we don't need the radiologist because the AI is reading the image? Um, or does that radiologist job change? I think the same is true in, in family medicine. I personally see a lot of potential in this, but undoubtedly the future practice of medicine, our identities as physicians may look different than what they are now. And I think, you know, thinking forward and leading forward is uh, critical. You know, Jake, there was a great book by uh, Richard and Daniel Susskind called The Future of the Professions, uh, where they look at kind of what's the potential future of uh, for the professions, not only medicine and physicians, but, but all professions moving forward in the age of AI and ML. And I think you can think about it, you know, many times we think about a physician as a specialist, you know, and as a family medicine specialist or an endocrinologist. But really, if you think about the physician as a collection of kind of skills and knowledge and and uh, and tasks that they can perform, I think you're absolutely right. Moving forward, that set of those those things, those tasks, that knowledge, those skill sets, are likely going to be very different moving forward in an AI enabled world. Um, but I think there's some things that are going to stay core to family medicine, which is that kind of longitudinal care, thinking about that comprehensiveness about that patient, and make sure that you're coordinating the care no matter where that happens. Um, so that book is a really great book if you're wanting to think about kind of what's the potential future of the professions as it relates to, you know, AI and ML. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my hope is that the, the AI can help. I don't think it will replace. I, I find a hard time, I find it hard right now to believe that, you know, a computer or a robot will be holding the hand of someone as they're dying or being present at the birth of their first child uh, witnessing their lived experiences. And I think the power of family medicine is being there with our patients at the times when they need us most. And my hope is that the technology and the AI will take away the tasks I don't need to do, take away the tasks where the technology can do it better than I can, and then free me up as a family doc, as a physician, to be there with my patients at the times they need us most to bring the heart and soul back into family medicine in a way that will bring value to our patients, bring value to our communities. You know, there was uh, one of our past presidents, Dr. Colin made a point um, that I completely 100% agree with. If there is a time in the future that AI and ML 
uh, replaces the physician, the last physician to hang up their stethoscope is most likely going to be a family physician um, because of the complexity of the data that we have to deal with, the breadth of issues that we deal with in family medicine and that empathy and that human factor that um, family medicine is uh, you know, known for, uh, I think will be the last things that will be able to be, be replaced. Uh, we had uh, a big company come to us that was big into technology and talking about their AI, ML, you know, future. And they were talking about cancer care and, and all these things we're doing. One of our board members says like, well, where's the love for primary care? Um, why aren't you doing more in primary care? And they were like, well, primary care is too hard. And it's too hard because of that complexity, that breadth. And going back to the point earlier about access to the data. So we just still don't have really great data in primary care to deliver on, you know, training these models in ways that can compete with the family physician. Right. The data we do have, though, says health systems that are based on a foundation of primary care have better outcomes and lower cost. So as you increase the ratio of family docs to population, you decrease death rates, you decrease death from cancer, from heart attack and stroke, you decrease low birth weight babies, you improve life expectancy, you decrease disparities in care. So right now, primary care and family medicine clearly improves health outcomes that matters for patients. The challenge we face is that it's not attractive to students. The current model is a model where many students uh, don't wanna go. And so my hope with the technology and the AI is that it will allow a change in practice that will drive more students toward family medicine and allow us as family physicians to provide that first contact person-focused care to provide the comprehensive care and the continuity to coordinate both with AI and other physicians to improve health, health outcomes uh, for everyone. Uh, we're at the end of time. And uh, just quickly, if there is a sort of a final takeaway from either one of you that you want the audience to hear, um, share it with us and then we'll close out. Well, let me start by saying, I, I think the future for family medicine is bright. I think there's a really great opportunity and promise as it relates to leveraging these new technologies and innovations to improve the lives of the patients that family medicines uh, care for. And there's a real opportunity for students to really help define that future and define how primary care and family medicine will be delivered for the next couple of generations. Yeah, I would echo that. I think that as long as patients, as long as people get sick or hurt or injured, there is a role for family physicians. I think that the technology is going to continue to advance and evolve. Um, the practice is clearly going to look markedly different by the time I retire. I'm looking forward to that world and being a part of these changes going forward. I think family medicine has been innovative throughout its relatively short history and look forward to many long, innovative years. This has been the Voice of Healthcare podcast. We'll see you next time.